we have this unfolding, really complex social revolution where women are going toe-to-toe in the workplace and they're outpacing men in post-secondary, and yet we still bear the brunt of the jobs at home, the childcare, etc. Twas ever thus, and therefore women are being basically told that this is a reward for being a parent. This is a reward for managing all this and juggling all this. The reward is you can sit at your kitchen table and drink your evening away. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast, episode 78. My name is Janet Goron. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last six years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we believe it is really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. Each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. I visited an AA meeting before and it wasn't really for me. I, I went to a couple of meetings a year in the Netherlands, but I found it, as you also mentioned um it's a bit it's you always talk about the problem constantly and you always stay an alcoholic and in my opinion you know you can change your mindset and the way you feel about it and that's more important than going back all the time to these kind of meetings so i was searching for something else and then i found you and i thought this and i found your podcast that's what it was i found your podcast and oh, because of these right. podcasts um yes i got hooked it was in the early beginning i think of your podcast um and i listened to all of them and then i heard about you know you can become a member and that's what i did so if you want to join our tribe and connect with others on this path then please go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe Back in 2014, when I was contemplating sobriety, I read a couple of books that really resonated with me. One was called Drinking, A Love Story by Caroline Knapp. And the other one was called Drink, The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol by Anne Dowsett-Johnston. Both of these books are amazing and they're an essential addition to the ever-growing body of quitlit. Anne's book was published back in 2013, and it was a book that predicted the huge rise in risky drinking for women, a prediction that has sadly come true. She highlights the positive fact that women have closed the gender gap in their professional and educational lives, but they've also achieved equality with men by drinking at unhealthy levels. Unfortunately, our bodies are just not equal to a man's body when it comes to metabolizing alcohol. We get dependent more quickly and it damages our health more severely. Anne Dowsett Johnston is an award-winning journalist, an author, an academic and a psychotherapist. So I was delighted when she agreed to be our podcast guest this week. I began by asking Anne to introduce herself. I am. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So lovely to be here. I wrote a book called Drink, um, the Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol, which was the culmination of a 30-year journalistic career where I looked at the closing gender gap on risky drinking for women. And it's part memoir, so it was partly my story. 
Um, in a nutshell, that's who I am. And a couple of years ago, I was in my 60s, am in my 60s, and went back to school to become a psychotherapist because I wanted to help women individually with the journey to recovery. And so I guess you could say I wear two or three hats. I've had three or four, five careers, and um, writing and therapy are key to everything for me. I've read your book. I'm sure many people listening have. So uh, talk us through your drinking story. You were a bit of a late developer, if I can say that. You you weren't a teenage drinker like I was. Your Your drinking started relatively late in life, didn't it? So talk us through why, when it started and when it started to worry you. I didn't drink in high school. I was a goody two-shoes, was a good babysitter and got high marks. By the time I hit university, I did drink a lot. But my problematic drinking came when I um, actually hit menopause. I was a workaholic long before I was an alcoholic. I had a very stellar career in journalism in Canada. I had a terrible depression. My son was about to go off to university. I had empty nest syndrome. I had, you know, hormonal issues around menopause. And I decided that I would drink a bit of wine to take the edge off instead of going to the doctor and getting antidepressants because my mother, who was a classic 60s poster girl for risky drinking, had mixed Valium, which was so common in the 60s with cocktails. She was a stay-at-home mom. My drinking didn't look anything like hers. And I thought, oh, I can't possibly be an alcoholic. But indeed, I was. And that's a loaded word that my body feels even when I say it. But I got into really risky drinking, medicating my depression. And that's why I think the most important question we can ask is not what's wrong with that woman, but what happened to her. And in my case, because I think so often we're medicating stress or anxiety or depression or overwork or all the things that women are confronted with. I was in my 40s and 50s when I got into trouble. I became vice principal of McGill University, which is arguably Canada's finest university. I was living in Montreal in a city where I knew no one. I was really lonely and depressed, engaged to be married to someone who lived across the country, but very lonely. And my drinking started, my working and my drinking started getting out of control. I was in my 50s. I thought my drinking was actually going to look like my mother's, which meant end-stage alcoholism. And I took myself to rehab. It didn't work. I found that, yes, I could get through rehab and not drink, which isn't that difficult. But I found that normal life, I didn't know how to live normal life and not have some wine, to be frank. And I had to take my life apart with jewelry, tweezers, and recreate a life that didn't involve drinking, that didn't involve workaholism, that didn't involve behaving in a way that didn't accommodate my depression. And so I recreated a life over a period of, I would say, eight years. Interesting. Yeah. We often say that uh, in our community, we say we need to create a life we don't want to escape from. Sounds like that's what you did. (laughs) It's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? Yeah. So your mom, you know, she intrigues me. She makes me think of Mad Men, you know, that that era, (laughs) wasn't it? And uh, I just wondered, in those days, I mean, did she think about getting help? Yeah, bless her heart. She went to rehab three times. Oh, did she? Okay. And it never stuck. So my mother started drinking in her 20s, and she was a problematic drinker, I would say, for about 30 or 40 years. She died at 84, still drinking. She switched off hard liquor into white wine, which she considered quitting drinking, which is a little (laughs) amusing. But she just never, it never took for her. She was a chain smoker. She's a beautiful woman who was a chain smoker and an incredibly hard drinking woman whose husband was usually in a different, on a different continent, either Africa or Australia as a mining engineer. And she was raising three children on her own. I'm the eldest. And the ramifications were horrible. She was an absent, stay in bed all day, 
woman often, and her drinking caused her no end of grief. Yeah, yeah. And us as well. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. So, so she went to rehab three times. You went to rehab once. I, I haven't been to rehab, but I imagine that surely they they must help you to work out how to navigate our alcohol drenched society once you leave. Is is that a missing piece in in some rehabs, perhaps? I think it's a huge missing piece to. I think you have, I remember getting out of rehab and the first thing that, that I was confronted by socially was a, a wedding shower for my niece that had a wine theme. Even the name tags had little wine glasses on them and there were wine games and so on and so forth. And I think we don't really understand how much our world is wallpapered with the message that if you're going to relax, reward or celebrate, it has to involve alcohol. What I was really struck by was that reality, that truth. How do I get through? I'm now 13 years sober and I will still sit in a restaurant facing the wine cellar and ask to be moved to a different part of of the restaurant because, frankly, I don't like looking at that. Yeah, yeah. I think we notice all that so much more, don't we, when we're sober? You know, yeah, all do. the the marketing that just comes. I mean, they they talk about self care a lot these days, uh, and I, I think that the liquor industry is trying to convince us that a glass of wine, you know, is an act of self care, whereas yes. for many of us, it's completely the opposite, isn't it? Yes, I agree with you. Go, just going back to your mum for a second, I've got this picture. Of, well, I saw a photograph of her, this glamorous lady out of Mad Men. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, your life was was very different. She she had nothing like the career accomplishments that you've had. But are there any similarities between you as, as personalities, as women? Oh, what a great question. She is... She is large in my imagination because she was an extraordinarily extroverted and friendly woman who radiated charm, really charm. In my, um, you're right, there's a picture of her in my TEDx talk. And she was extraordinarily charismatic. I think I'm a shadow of my mother. My mother was legendary for her grace and her ability to charm anyone from small children to, you know, elderly adults. She was larger than life in a good and a bad way. Her drinking was gothic. She stayed up all night, every night, um, ranting in the halls. You hear the tinkle, tinkle, tinkle of her glass, and she'd stand outside your bedroom door and criticize whatever it is she felt like criticizing. So she was a very different woman. Any grace I have, though, comes from my mother. My mother was a remarkable character. I loved her very much. And were you close to her as an adult? I was always close to her. Yeah. I would hold her head when she was nauseous after taking antabuse and drinking on antabuse. The rest of the family tried to do tough love. I just never could do tough love on her. Probably my to my detriment. And was she still alive when you stopped drinking? She was, and she was heartbroken that I had a similar problem. And she used to say, darling, you don't want this problem. I'm so worried about you. She was a very caring and tender individual. And it was... Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, the ranting and the violence and the rage of um, being inebriated and then this incredibly soft and gracious woman when she was sober. And it was extreme. Yeah, that's what alcohol does to us, doesn't it? It makes us into other people. It does. Yeah, well said. So we heard that you went to rehab and it uh, wasn't that successful when you when you came out? Then you had to to do the work yourself. So talk us through your first year of sobriety. Did at least rehab put you on absolutely the right path? You were determined to become sober after rehab. At least did it help? Yes, that? I was. I was, um, as I said, engaged to be married to a, 
exquisite man who's in the book. And he um, was fierce about my being sober. And so was my son. And so was my best friend. I had many people rooting for me. But for the first three months of that first summer, I snuck drinks. Um, And then on November the 3rd, 2008, I had yet again had a had a glass of wine when I wasn't supposed to. And I got down on my knees and said, I want to take my life. My ex-husband, who's my pal, said, try a meeting instead. And a woman came up to me and said, can I, can I take you for coffee? Can I take you to a meeting tonight? I said yes to both. And she became my mentor. And Day by day, I was able to put a sober life together. I found the first year excruciating. I found the first year, did you? Yeah, I found it um, not for the faint of heart. All those social events to figure out, figuring out where your support was going to come from. Um, Community, I think, is the opposite of addiction. But what community do you want to be part of? Um, Those were the issues I was wrestling with. And... I felt like somebody had taken a, a peeler and taken the outer layer of my skin off. Yeah. I had no no buffer. Yeah, you feel raw and exposed. An analogy that I like is, um, you know, when we drink, it's almost like we're wearing a cloak, a kind of co- cozy cloak. And when we get sober, we take it off and we're kind of naked and cold. And it's it's really horrible, the f- those first few months. And uh, my, I mean, I, I haven't really suffered from depression, but my, in my first year of sobriety, I really hit a, a low, you know, that went on for months and months. I felt really down and I was doubting so much whether I was doing the right thing. You know, I was having thoughts like, oh, is the rest of my life, you know, going to be as miserable as this? I'm not sure sobriety is for me in that case. So I nearly kind of slipped, but gradually, um, my happiness returned, but it it, it took a while. Uh, I know there's a name for it now, which I'm sure you know, but I only learned it recently. Anhedonia, you know, when yes, you, you, anhedonia, exactly. You don't feel any joy, and and I think the joy of sobriety, one of the many joys, is that you start to rediscover the joy of everyday pleasures. You know, like playing with the dog and seeing kids, and you know, doing. Do just normal stuff. Yeah. Whereas when you're drinking, all you're really interested in is activities that involve drinking. When I had my anhedonia, I wasn't even getting those kind of pleasures. I just had no pleasure at all. And the days would, would seem very long. So it it took, you know, a lot of doing. And it was only when I got the idea to set up Tribe Sober that I started perking up a bit, you know, because suddenly I had something to do, something interesting. And every time I achieved a little goal on the way to that bigger goal, I, um, you know, it kind of triggered my happy brain chemicals. So things started buzzing again because I was so missing my buzz. <laughs> so, yeah, that first year is tough. And uh, I think particularly the first six months, Because I think after about six months, you start getting little glimpses, you know, of how how nice life could be. But then they go away. They they don't last very long. But it's it's really a matter of sticking it out, isn't it? Yes. uh, But I think the more that people realize it's it's not easy, the the more likely they are to to stick with it. But, you know, all I can say personally is it's so worth it. You know, if you have to have a miserable year, then whatever. But think of the rest of your life. You get the rest of your life back. Yes, it gives you. um, I'm working with a young woman right now in her 20s who just can't imagine that there's any joy in a a sober life. And I, I think it's just boundless. I recently became a grandmother and I'm you know, allowed to hold the baby and be with the baby. And it wouldn't be happening if I had been drinking. So um, there are many joys, many, many joys, and not ones that you have to wait until you're 68 to to get yeah. to. Yeah. Um, but it is, you know, I, I often have people say, um, what about the champagne at my wedding? And I'll say, are you getting married? No. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It's the first thing we think of. 
what they say here in South Africa, which you can imagine a lot is, how am I going to enjoy the sunset without a glass of wine? Right. <laughs> so I said, right. well, the sun will still set. <laughs> Have something else in that glass, maybe. Exactly. But yes, I, I was like your your client. You know, I couldn't imagine life without alcohol. I thought it would be a, a miserable place. I got myself into a trap because of that thinking. For 10 years, I was trying to moderate because I thought, well, I can't possibly stop altogether. That that would be ridiculous. But maybe right. I can just drink a couple of bottles of wine a week rather than a night. <laughs> and I would try, you know, sheer willpower and get through maybe 10 days, two weeks, and then the wheels would come off. So I was in this terrible cycle. Plus, you know, I'm married to a French man that doesn't like the heavy drinking things. So, you know, I had him nagging me as well. So we'd have terrible row. And then I'd try again. So I was really stuck in that cycle for a decade. And mm -hmm. I think that's why we need community. Because if I'd been in a community, they would have said to me, like we say to people in ours all the time, well, you can't moderate because you've crossed a line with your drinking. Forget moderation. Just yes. stop. And it's hard, but you'll get there. So uh, there I was, you know, on my own because I was full of shame. I mean, you know how much shame is involved for, for a woman around this. So I wanted to get myself sober very privately. You know, I thought, well, I've got myself into this mess. Now I'll get myself out of it and nobody will be any the wiser. <laughs> it didn't work out that way. <laughs> well, there is such shame. You're you're so right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. If, I mean, your TED Talk's great. I don't know if you've seen uh, Claire Pooley's TED Talk about I shame. I haven't. Have a look at it. She's great. Yeah. She's, yeah uh, she that. wrote The Sober Diaries. Yeah, she's um, she feels very strongly about that. I'm always fascinated by the way society categorizes um, us people into either normal drinkers or raging alcoholics. You know, yes. The man on the bench, et cetera. And I personally think that that traps a lot of people because um, people will look at the old man on the bench and they'll think, well, I'm not like him. I can't possibly be an alcoholic. And, you know, that stigma keeps a lot of us trapped in our, our drinking. It's almost as if we have to hit a rock bottom before we can make a change. Do you think that's that's true? Yes, I, I think that um, that long dis discussion with the moderation factor about the moderation factor um, in the back of Carolyn Knapp's book, she talks about it being an average of 12 years. So say 10 or yeah. 12 years that we negotiate. Yeah. And I kept my drinking diaries where I said, no, this week I will only drink on Thursday and Friday, et cetera, et cetera. And, and had my little tally and it was always a failure or it wouldn't be a failure. I could do two weeks as you say, and then I would be back at it. So yeah. I think, I think, um, that long period of playing around with moderation really gets us into trouble. For me, there came a time when I knew I had to quit and my alcoholism dug in, got worse. And in fact, it was harder to quit. Um, once I had declared it, it was as if um, a demon grew up. So I found the whole thing very challenging. Yeah, I think going back to the moderation thing, it's almost as if we're in a contemplation phase, don't you think? Because for any big decision, you know, if we're getting divorced or moving house or moving countries, we have to con think about it for quite a long time. So I think, you know, for a lot of people, that moderation is contemplation. And I think it was with me and it was denial that, that I could ever live without alcohol as well. So in your um, in your book, obviously, you share your, your personal struggles, but you also look at the bigger picture. And what really fascinated me is your portrayal of how the liquor industry has almost hijacked the feminist movements. You know, it's targeted us so ruthlessly. And in your TED Talk, um, you mentioned that it was in the 90s, wasn't it? The the liquor industry executives got together to plan, you know, to, to look at who wasn't drinking enough. And it was it was the women. That's and right. They, they've done a stunning job on us, haven't they? You know, yeah. the mommy juice. Uh, Berry flavored vodkas, you know, girls night out wine, skinny girl cocktails. These aren't manly drinks and they're not aimed at men. 
we have this unfolding, really complex social revolution where women are going toe-to-toe in the workplace and they're outpacing men in post-secondary, and yet we still bear the brunt of the jobs at home, the childcare, etc. Twas ever thus, and therefore women are being basically told that this is a reward for being a parent. This is a reward for managing all this and juggling all this. The reward is you can sit at your kitchen table and drink your evening away and behave in a way that very few men would. So I shouldn't say very few men. Men still outpace women in drinking, but women have caught up in such an extraordinary way in terms of risky drinking and in terms of going to the hospital for emergency presentations, et cetera. I mean, it really is disturbing how quickly women and girls have caught up. Yeah, I mean, of course we want to earn as much as men and and close that that gender gap in in every way, but we can't do it with alcohol because our our bodies aren't aren't capable of taking taking the brunt of all these, you know, drinks that we're uh, we're being plied with. Yes, it's so, so true. So you, in your book, um, I mean, you painted quite a bleak picture of how things were, I thought, anyway. <laughs> so um, have things improved at all, do you think, or have no. they just got worse? No. I mean, sadly, everything that I predicted <laughs> has come true yeah. and become worse. And we now have, as we just talked about, the mummy juices of the world and the memes that basically say you deserve a drink today i'm the reason mommy cries or mommy drinks my crying is the reason mommy drinks and we have a, a really really um disheartening situation the interesting thing is nobody's having an adult conversation about it nobody's having an adult conversation about the fact that we've been pitched alcohol as uh, a problem solver and a way to unwind a decompression tool. And it is, it it isn't just size that makes it, we, you know, democratically we're equal, but metabolically and hormonally women are built very differently. 15% of breast cancer cases are attributable to alcohol consumption. So we need to have a serious adult conversation with women about the health implications of turning to alcohol and um, counting your drinks, knowing how many measured drinks a week you can have to keep it under the safe uh, risk and safe drinking guidelines. So my attitude is I, I talk about it a lot in North America and beyond, and we need to be having a conversation. We know how to do the downward dog. We know the trans fats aren't good for us. This is just one other thing for our health that we need to be able to discuss. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. There's a huge need for education. I, I run workshops helping people to stop drinking. And um, obviously, I talk about the health a lot and the cancer. And and I can see people's faces, you know, and I've got all these gruesome slides, you know, because I really like to rub it in. And I can see them looking and not, not only horror at my slides, but they honestly don't know this, you know, and it is so frightening to them. And I got breast cancer in 2006. And I was drinking a lot in those days. And I had no idea there was any relationship between my drinking and the breast cancer, because it it wasn't really in the public domain. You know, it is a little bit now, but it certainly wasn't then. And the really shocking thing for me looking back is, I mean, I had mastectomy, chemotherapy, all that. And at the end of it, I went to my oncologist and I said, I don't want this thing to to come back, you know, what what should I do? I said, I'll I'll drink water and eat my greens. I'll, I'll follow any guidelines that you give me. And he said, Oh no, no, you know, you've you've gone through this and you've got through the other side. Now you must go away and eat and drink and be merry. And and I said, So alcohol's all right, is it? And he said, Absolutely. And that's a doctor and oncologist. <laughs> so, wow. So of course I did. I went away and carried on drinking. But recently, I mean, I was talking to a lady that had breast cancer in the States, uh, was it six years ago? And she was told by her oncologist, you know, 
quit the wine, just don't drink because you can only have such a small amount. And if you can't drink that, then you shouldn't touch it at all. So I think things are changing, but we're never going to stop the liquor industry marketing to us, are we? Because it's all about profit, which, as we know, comes before people. So perhaps we have to tackle it from the other side and, and you know, get as many women on side and, and educated as possible about it. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's um, something that young girls could benefit from being educated on. However, the evidence is that that isn't effective. The evidence is that pricing, availability, and marketing are actually yeah. what drive how we how we drink. And the marketing's been extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. And I think you edited a magazine, didn't you, for a long time? So um, you, you'll know a lot better than than myself. But I think a lot of publications they they have revenue don't they advertising revenue because they advertise liquor some of them some of the women's magazines That's you know right. they'll have, have the beautiful cocktails and uh, there's a magazine called woman's health actually that i'm sure you know it's global and they're notorious for writing these articles you know why red wine is good for you and the champagne diet so every time i read this you know we get across and we, we send off all these letters you know from tribe sobras if they care they they don't respond usually but you know the the magazines and i met a an editor of a, a big magazine well it's quite big here and uh, I was talking to her at a party and she said, oh, you know, I know your story. I know about Tribe Sober. I'd like to, to write about you. And I said, oh, well, go ahead. And she said, no, I can't, you know, because so much of our revenue is from liquor advertisements. Oh, yes. It would never get past the editor. So my feeling is until liquor advertising is banned, you know, the real story isn't going to get out in the media. Because no. you remember cigarettes. I mean, I used to smoke my head off in the 20s. In my 20s, I worked in the BBC. We worked in an open plan office. We all smoked our heads off. And we used to open our packets and chuck the cigarettes around. You know, we we're all smoking. There was a fog in that room. It was in a basement as well. We didn't know it was bad for us. And then right. I think in my late 20s, I'll uh, cigarette advertising must have been banned and suddenly it was in the newspaper I still remember saying oh cigarettes give you lung cancer my goodness and I stopped because I didn't want lung cancer good for you yeah so maybe one day you know and, and then we'll see more articles in the press about what alcohol does to you really oh yes the list yeah. goes on I feel like there are little little glimmers of change. I mean, I, I, I agree with you about everything. It is a huge job, for, you know, for us sobriety advocates or whatever you want to call us. But, you know, the fact that the alcohol-free drinks market has exploded, I mean, that's that's driven by profit, isn't it? So <laughs> it's very good for us sober people and people that want to get sober particularly because it helps with that first awful year you know if you've got yes. something to hold in your hand or you can you know keep the ritual you can still open a bottle of wine every night but make sure it's alcohol free wine so i think that's you know a huge positive sign and of course we've got loads of online sobriety groups you know people don't have to go to aa if they don't want to go to aa and Which then we've got fabulous. this We've got this magazine, haven't we? Let's talk about Hola Sober. I had uh, Susan Christina on my podcast. Wow. <laughs> yeah, she's she's a dynamo. She um, is. Yes, yeah, so I'm part of the Ola Sober team and am contributing to Ola Sober magazine, um, founded by this incredible woman, Susan Christina, um, from Ireland, and running at, out of Madrid. And there are a handful of us who are hosts in their daily meetings um, for Ola Sober, and I am one of those. It is Really exciting, I think, to see modern recovery unfolding and offering people so many alternatives to um, the 12 step. If 12 step works for you, great, but it doesn't work for a lot of people. And I think it's extraordinary that there is this, this alternative, which is primarily for women and very much aimed at um, 
the the messaging, as you know, that we are addicted to an addictive substance and to try and eliminate the shame. Yeah. I think eliminating shame is absolutely key. I think that uh, I'm writing enthusiastically f- once a month for that wonderful magazine. And the January issue will be blockbuster because we're all writing about what our plans are for the new year and what our resolutions are, et cetera. Um, but it's been a very energetic part of my recovery to be part of Ola Sober. Uh, there is a freshness to it and there is a passion to it. And I believe it's doing some really good work for, uh, especially the newcomer, especially the newcomer, the, the woman who's, who's found her way to the rooms who really needs help. Yeah. Cause, cause what that magazine will do is it, it'll make sobriety as glamorous as we used to think drinking was. I right. Think. And that's that's one of her aims, isn't it? And, you know, you mentioned the word passionate. I mean, that is that is Susan Christina, isn't it? She's so full of energy and passion. And, um, you know, if anybody can rebrand sobriety, she can. <laughs> I believe that. I believe and that, and I think she is. And it's overdue for a, re, a rebrand, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's overdue for a rebrand, although I, I would be very remiss in not saying that, you know, my, my first five years was successful because of 12-step. And I think there are many of us who benefited from 12-step. So I just, I like the fact that there's a smorgasbord, a banquet that you get Absolutely. to choose from. Absolutely, me too. But when I say sobriety, I'm, I'm not particularly talking about the uh, AA side of it but I'm just talking about the image you know because when I think about myself you know I I got sober because I I was killing myself frankly and I wanted to live but uh, I wasn't expecting sobriety to be joyful or or happy you know I was expecting it to be very quiet and miserable and I thought well you know, I'm quite old now and I've had lots of fun. So I'll just stay home and read books or something. Right, right. <laughs> I know. I, I share that with you. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. What what would you say if there's a woman listening to this and she was um, she is like we were you know highly functioning alcoholic she knows she's drinking too much but she just feels completely daunted you know by the thought of doing anything and we probably haven't helped by saying how dreadful the first year yeah. but what would you say to her I would say what I often say which is that. The universe has a better imagination than you do. And if you will come to the table and find sobriety, in other words, be alert, be awake, be aware of the signs of of growth in your life, you will be amazed at what unfolds. You will be amazed at what is put in your path. Because I think that when we are drinking and drinking heavily, the world stops. Nothing, nothing evolves, nothing you know, we get stuck in our ways, we um, trip up, we make errors. But I think if you flip it around and actually get through, yes, that tough first year and start crafting an open space for life to flourish, you'll be amazed at how life will meet you. Your friends will meet you, your family will meet you in ways that they haven't for a long time. And opportunities will meet you. My life is, has never been better. My life is extraordinary right now. I have love in my life. I have a new grandchild in my life. I have uh, work that sustains me and thrills me. I think that is the greatest surprise of being alive, which is to taste that feeling of adventure. And for me, there was no adventure uh, misadventure, per- perhaps, in drinking. Misadventure in I would trip and fall or I would, you know, drink more than I intended to and I would black out. But 
the reverse is true as a sober person. In my 14th year of sobriety, I can honestly say I have never been better. Life has never been better. I, I have a full psychotherapy practice. I run something called Writing Your Recovery, which is for women who want to tell uh, their story about recovery from, yes, from substance use, but it can be from grief or heartache or bad childhood or whatever. So I'm shepherding all these wonderful writers from around the world in these courses. And life has never been richer. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I always say to people that sobriety at the very least it'll be an adventure because you're you're venturing into the unknown aren't you and and I ask people to play the movie forward five years you know if you carry on drinking like that where will you be in five years and the answer is usually well in exactly the same place probably drinking (laughs) more because that's what it does doesn't it oh yes but go the other way and who knows yeah, you mentioned uh, family. I, I love living, uh, reading about your son because I've got just the one son as well who's a little bit older than yours. He didn't used to say much about my drinking. He used to get a bit annoyed sometimes, but we never really talked about it. But when I got sober, you know, the first thing he said was, he said, wow, mum, I, I didn't think you'd ever do that, so, you know, stop drinking. And Congratulations. He said, yeah, but he said, I'm so proud of you, you know, and we, we've just got so close. And when I set up Tribe Sober, he did all my social media and set up the website because oh. he was so excited for me and, and so pleased. And we're, we're much closer these days because of that. Unbelievable. So, uh, and I, I love that exercise that your your son had you do. Tell us about that. Yes. It's a good exercise. Yes, it's a great exercise. Um, again, it's in my TED Talk where my son, and in my book where my son, um, I call him one morning. I'm 18 months sober, and my fiance has just dumped me on the phone. So I'm devastated. My father, uh, my so-called sober parent, is dying of end-stage alcoholism, and I decide that my getting sober has got me nowhere. And I phone my son in Brooklyn and say, there's no benefit to my being sober. And he asked me to get a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle and do gains and losses. And he has me put the man who dumped me his name on one side and then begin to tally all the things that I regained, including my writing and my friendships and my mother. And he adds himself. He adds and says, I'm a splendid mother. And I say, really? And he says, yes. And it was, um, it is something I return to and return to. Um, The image of knowing that my life is full, my life is flourishing, and my life is rich because I gave up drinking. Yeah. And I think this fear of losing stuff, uh, losing things, keeps a lot of people trapped because we have all these limiting beliefs, don't we? So people, well, I, you know, I was the same. It was, well, how will I ever have fun? You know, I'm going to lose my all my friends. What will I do? I'll be bored. I'll be boring. We have all these fears, don't we? Because, and they're all fears about things that we'll lose. But in fact, you know, hopefully we, we've got the example across that we, we've both gained so much. And I see that in our community. You know, people have got creative. They've taken up, you know, new sports, new hobbies, arts and music. Amazing examples, things that they never would have done if they were sitting on the sofa with a bottle of wine watching Netflix every night, which was was the pattern. Yeah, the, I, I love this, um, you know, we, we've we've gained more than we've lost. I think we have to do that balance sheet and keep doing it. So you mentioned briefly your recovery um, writing course, which uh, is very interesting to me because I, I love writing as well. And I wrote a goodbye to alcohol letter. I wanted to celebrate my first soberversary and I wasn't sure what to do. So I thought, oh, I'll write something. So I had it in my head that, you know, alcohol is like an abusive lover. You know, it keeps coming into your life and you kick it out and then it comes back and it says, I'll be different this time. It's going to work right. out this time. We get rid of it. And it just goes on and on. So I wrote a letter, you know, just saying, 
goodbye, this is it, you know, we're, my, I've got a different kind of life ahead now. And But I, I tried to make it reasonably upbeat. I said things like, you know, I'll never forget you. We had some crazy times. <laughs> it's over. It's over. And I've, um, I was on a radio show quite soon after I wrote that letter and I ended up reading because he was interviewing me about my sobriety. So I ended up um, reading it on the radio and then lots of people rang in. It was a, a talk show. And I gave my email on on that program. And I got all of these emails, people saying goodbye to. And it made me think of your course, because it wasn't always alcohol by any means. You know, it was goodbye to self-harm or goodbye to, to drugs or goodbye to a person. Yeah, so right. this... And I think writing is so cathartic and powerful, and it's um, it's wonderful that you're doing these these courses. So, just talk to us a little bit about the courses. Are they online? And yes, uh, so I I designed a course, my dream course. What course would I like to take? Say I wanted to write my story and get it published as a book. What would I What would I want to do? So I teach every course. It's live. It's online, but it's live. It's not taped. I teach eight weeks. We start um, January 18th, and there are two time slots. And I walk you through how to get started with your story, how to you know, manage a narrative arc, how to find an agent, how to get published. And we share and workshop in the group, group of women, um, our stories. And what is... Uh, a, astounding is we form these tightly knit groups of supportive, creative individuals who have each other's back, start knowing each other's truth. So, you know, one's writing currently about an eating disorder and one's writing about a tragic childhood incident. And one's writing about giving up wine when their husband has become handicapped and all the stories are different and many will see it into publication and it's basically a virtual salon um, where you can meet in my zoom room and get known and, and get to know a few others I limit it to 16 people because we keep it slightly intimate but they're from all over the world, Norway, Mexico, Australia. I haven't had anyone from Africa, but it would be wonderful to have someone. And it's uh, it's rich. It's yeah, rich. It sounds, it sounds amazing, and it sounds amazing. Yeah, and it's. I bet it, there's also a kind of element of therapy in those meetings, isn't there? Because um, there's a, I mean, you, you're the one that studied therapy, but isn't there something called narrative therapy? Yes. And it's about telling our story. And, it is narrative therapy. How we, yes, how you frame things and how you reframe them. Yes. Yeah, because we, isn't it that we try, we tell ourselves like, uh, stories about our life to help to make sense of it, something something like that, and that's that's, that's what we we do all the time, don't we? That's my my theory that we, you know, it's the great Joan Didion's line who died this week is we tell ourselves stories in order to live, and we are our storytelling animals, and this is how we frame and reframe what happened to us, and I think that there is so much in so much trauma in women's lives you know we drink because we were hurt this way or we're suffering that way I think it isn't as simple as I drink because it's fun but I, I, I drink because my life's complex or as you said beautifully you know I will lose all my friends or I won't be fun or I won't have any more fun I mean we there's so much fear involved with the process of approaching recovery yeah. And, and whereas we might start drinking because it's fun and, and drink moderately, but um, then we get we tip into the self-medication um, drinking, yes. the over-drinking, don't we? And that's that's where it gets dangerous. So can I just ask you quickly, talking about the, the writing, tell me briefly about writing drink. You know, why did you write that book? And how how did it feel to to write it? And it, it must have sold millions of copies. Just uh, tell us a bit about the process. Did it just come to you one day? I'm going to write about this. Or I always, always a plan? I always knew I was going to write it. It was the theme that I grew up with as a child. Why does why does a woman drink? 
Then I fell down the bunny hole of addiction and I was absolutely comforted and quietly, secretly comforted by Carolyn Knapp's book, Drinking a Love Story. I read it and carried it with me in my briefcase when I was traveling on business. And it was long before I told my friend or my sister that I had a drinking problem. I confided in that book um, by reading and rereading it. And I wanted to create a book that did the same thing for women. And I receive weekly lots of emails from women who say, your book was my first or got me sober. Um, It means so much to me. And those emails mean so much to me. And I've have pen pals all around the world. It was a pioneering book in 2013. People didn't believe it was true. People didn't believe women were catching up with men, which indeed we have. Now it's seen as obvious and uh, people didn't believe that the alcohol industry was targeting women with mummy juice, et cetera. Um, now that's seen as obvious. So people, people chuckled and laughed a little bit and said it can't possibly be the fact. I stuck with it and I loved writing that book. And it was, it was, my mother was still alive. It was very hard to write about her drinking and I did so with her blessing. She was very brave to let me share a part of her story. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were brave as well to uh, to put it all out there. But that book's life changing. So it's I think it's our duty, really, when we can, isn't it, to share our stories. If it just helps one or two people, then it's 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 worth it. Yes, it is our duty. That's a good way of putting it. So, Anne, um, people will be listening to this and they'll want to know more. So, obviously, they can get your book, Drink, from Amazon. Yes. Uh, I've reread it recently on on my Kindle, so um, you can get it on Kindle. And your website is com, and they can read about your your therapy sessions and, of course, your, your writing courses on there, can't they? Yeah. So, I'll yes. make sure that that's all in the notes, the show notes. Thank you. Thank also, you. I would love anything, to hear from people. Anything um, you'd like to add that we haven't talked about? I think you, um, your your name, Tribe Sober, is beautiful. And <laughs> it's exciting what you're doing. Oh, and you. I think it's exciting that there are so many of us out there in the in the stratosphere making a difference and speaking up and so many women who who are offering platforms and i'm loving that you raised you know that we we are trying to create lives that we don't want to escape from because escape has been the theme if you look at the volume and the cocktails of the 60s and the the drinking patterns of of the 90s etc so I love this notion that we, you know, hold on to our lives with two hands and and wait for the adventure. Yeah. So it's, bravo it's to a, you. Oh, thank you. Well, well, you too. I mean, I, I think we're we're in a revolution, aren't we? Really, and you know, yes. people like Susan Christina and this magazine, and we just need to keep keep talking. <laughs> yes, we need to keep talking. It is a sober revolution, and we are witnessing it and living it and benefiting from it. Thank you so much, Anne. That was fascinating. As usual, I'm going to pull out some key points from the conversation. Anne's drinking became problematic as she hit menopause. Her son was going off to college and she had empty nest syndrome. She also became depressed, but she didn't want antidepressants as her mom had fallen prey to the combination of cocktails and Valium. So she started to rely on wine to take the edge off. In her 50s, Anne became so worried about her drinking that she took herself off to rehab. However, it didn't work. Leaving rehab, she had no idea how to navigate normal life without alcohol. We agreed that, in fact, this is a missing piece in some rehabs. She found herself sneaking drinks for three months and then began to feel suicidal. Her ex-husband suggested a meeting and that was the beginning of her recovery. Recovery was a long journey for Anne. She found she had to unpick her life and rebuild it so that it didn't involve alcohol. This took years, and year one was particularly hard. 
This got me reflecting on our Tribe Sober community. We sometimes get people saying, I haven't had a drink for two weeks. Why do I still feel so rubbish? Well, when we embark on this life-changing journey, I think we have to learn to be patient and play the long game. Just listen to Tribe Sober podcast number 61 and you'll hear Dr. Dawn explain that for every year that we drank, we should allow a month of recovery. And what I've actually observed after helping hundreds of people to get sober is that it takes about a year for sobriety to really stick. That first year of sobriety, you need to spend six months of focusing on changing your behaviour so that you no longer drink, followed by a further six months of reconfiguring your life so that you create a life you don't want to escape from. And as we always say, you have to throw the book at it and give it your all. You heard Anne say that this journey is not for the faint-hearted, but the rewards are huge and the rest of your life will be healthier and happier. You know you're worth it, as that hair colour ad used to say. We talked about my decade of moderation and Anne reminded me that in Caroline Knapp's book, she says that the average period of negotiation that we do with ourselves is about 12 years. There has been a more recent study by The Tempest that says it usually takes someone about 11 years between recognising that they have a problem with alcohol and actually reaching out for help. This is where the power of community comes in. If I'd been in a sober community when I was trying and failing to moderate my drinking, they would have told me to stop wasting my time trying to control an addictive substance. And of course, now I know that once we've crossed a line with our drinking, there's no going back. We just have to ditch the stuff and learn how to thrive in our alcohol-free lives. So if you are in that period of negotiation, setting rules, trying to moderate, don't waste 11 years of your life. Go to tribesober.com and join our community today. Anne and I both agree that the liquor industry has hijacked the feminist movement, convincing us that we need mommy juice to parent and wine for self-care. Anne actually highlighted these facts in her book eight years ago, and she feels that things have got even worse since then. Women really have to get smart, because as Anne put it, democratically we are equal, but metabolically and hormonally we are not equal to men. Anne is part of the Hola Sober team with the wonderful Susan Christina, who you can hear on Tribe Sober podcast episode 67. Anne is excited about the way that the modern recovery movement is evolving and how there are so many different ways to get sober these days. We talked about the fact that sobriety gives us so much more than it takes away. And if you're having a wobble in your sobriety, then do the exercise that Anne's son suggested a list of gains and losses. She talks movingly about this exercise on her fabulous TED Talk. I'll put the link in the show notes. Anne loves writing and she runs an eight-week online recovery writing course, which will help you to not only write your memoir, but then get it published. Check out her course on her website, which is johnston.com. I'll put the link in the show notes. I loved her story about carrying Caroline Knapp's book around in her briefcase when she was contemplating getting sober, and that's what inspired her to write Drink. So make sure you get a copy of Drink on Amazon if you haven't read it already, and carry it around in your bag, whether to inspire you or just to keep you on track. It's still January as we record this, so if you're ready to dip your toe in the waters of sobriety and test your dependence, then please check out our January challenge on tribesober.com. For a small donation to a good cause, you get online and community support for an alcohol-free month. And if it's not January, then just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. As a new member, we'll chat to you about your needs and design you a tailor-made sobriety journey that will change your life. Now it's time to open my phone and go to the first member message that inspires me. 
This week I chose a message from our chat forum Slack. Tribe member Shiz shares a fabulous tip for 2022. A decision to be alcohol free is a difficult lifestyle change. The life of an alcoholic has one routine, which is finding the next reason and the next popular spot to booze the hours away. Being sober involves identifying triggers, planning ahead and avoiding old habits. Finding new habits can be a challenge. This may result in an overwhelming and a crushing sense of emptiness. Finding the opposite to emptiness is not easy. I have a learning that I shared on this afternoon's Zoom cafe. I learned to spin the word empty to Matia, M-T-E-A. The focus is myself. The M stands for me. The T stands for thoughts. E stands for emotion. And A stands for actions. With the Matia thought breakdown being written down, I realised that I am not empty. For 2022, the focus is to find new fulfilling habits and patterns. Well, thank you, Shiz. It's been such a joy to see you transform from a problem drinker to someone who is able to not only stay sober himself, but to inspire the rest of the tribe. You're putting in the work and getting the rewards. Well done. Now this week, we've got a PDF to give away. It's called 30 Signs You May Have a Problem with Alcohol. Just email me at janet at tribesober.com if you'd like a copy. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us and share the podcast. And we'd be so grateful if you'll leave us a review. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.